Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Later in the show, we're getting all chemical with the element lead. But first, here's producer Sonia Sly with a story about children and art that she's called More Than Just a Picture. Yeah, those are trees. And what's this here? And that's a little house. Whose house is that? Our house. Okay, and what are those green things? Eggs. That's our cat. His name is Walking Cat. Hi, I'm Sonia Sly. And that was my six-year-old son who loves to draw. You're screaming. It is because his foot is on your head. Those are your feathers. This is your beak. One of the big claims has been that there is more to children's art than just a picture on a page, that there is some psychological content that, as adults, we can glean by looking at what children have drawn. And this is Harleen Hain, and I'm the Vice-Chancellor here at the University of Otago, and I'm also Professor of Psychology here. And over the past two decades, Professor Hain has been looking at children's drawings and techniques that could be used in interviews in clinical and legal settings. One of those ways is referred to as projective drawing. And in that context, what happens is the interviewer, an adult, asks a child to produce a picture, and then the adult infers something about the child on the basis of what the child has drawn. The emphasis is only on the drawing, not on what the child has said about it while they're being interviewed. And the most common claim that is made is that um, children's drawings, particularly of a human figure, provide a proxy measure of their cognitive development or their IQ. Which sounds like a bit of a stretch. Or is it? Almost 100 years ago, people started to realise that children's drawings of the human figure progressed in a very consistent manner. Beginning at about the age of three or four, children start to try to represent the human figure. And what that looks like in this case is a bug. It's called a tadpole drawing because the child constructs both the head and the body with a central feature, and then they attach some limbs onto the side. So here you can see a picture produced by a a four-and-a-half-year-old where the child begins to draw separate shapes for the head and the trunk. The drawing still has some huge immaturities. It has no nose. At least it's got eyes and it looks like a smile. It does. As adults, we would recognize that as a human figure. Children do understand that bodies have arms and legs and eyes and ears, um, but their ability to depict that in a two-dimensional space goes through this very traditional pattern of progress. Now we start to see some other things, like this one has things that look like ears, possibly, and hair. 
and even flowery looking shapes at the end of the arms. These are fingers. Part of that is due to the motoric immaturity of a young child. So this is a little girl, she's got a flower on her dress. Got um, eyebrows, she's got ears, she's got hair, no she's nose. got shoes. Yeah, still no nose. In Western cultures, if we look at children's drawings, they tend to move through these very rigid stages. But Within a given age, there is a huge individual difference in the quality of children's drawings. Professor Haynes says children start to draw more fully formed human beings when they're around 11 or 12 years old. For literally almost 100 years now, some psychologists have argued that it is possible to infer a child's intelligence on the basis of their drawing. I mean, there is a history of the great masters who were very artistically talented and probably also very intellectually gifted as well. Leonardo da Vinci, Pablo Picasso, but those are the extremes. We can't use that information to infer that in an average population of children, we would be able to pluck those out who might need additional support in the classroom or those who might need extension activities on the basis of what they've drawn. There's also another way that Professor Hain has looked at children's drawings. As a means of facilitating children's communication. Children are asked to describe an event or an experience, and while they're doing that, they are given the opportunity to to draw. So we've looked at, um, in our research, whether or not um, the opportunity to draw while answering questions actually increases the amount of information that children report. Again, over the last 20 or so years, we have taken literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children um, on a range of different events um, and then interviewed them about those experiences. We're talking pony rides, trips to the Cadbury Chocolate Factory, the Albatross Colony, police and fire stations. You know, those kind of memorable experiences. And the point of all these experiences is to really build a memory for a child. And this is how the process worked. We then interviewed them a day later, a week later, a month later, a year later. So we have the opportunity to test what the children say against what actually happened. So it's really important in these studies that we draw the link between what the child is drawing about and the nature of the interview. Some of the children were asked a series of questions about the trip, while another group were given felt markers and a large piece of paper. This group were asked to draw and talk about their experience of the field trip. They draw part of the event and explain what's happening, and then they might go back and augment it. We take children on buses to events, and children will draw the bus, and they'll say, this is the bus, and then they'll go on to speak about something else, and then they'll say, oh, I remember, I was sitting in this seat on the bus, and then they'll draw themselves, and the bus driver was here, and he was wearing a green cap. It's like an adult's version of ticking items off a list. Now, what they've found is that children who were given the opportunity to draw while being interviewed reported back more information than their peers who were simply recounting the experience while being asked the same set of questions. So you usually get about twice as much information from a child who is drawing than one who is not. Is it about recall and is it about the act of doing something physical then triggers memory. One possibility is that children use the drawing to keep track of what they have and haven't said, which is more difficult to do if you're simply telling a story. And there were some additional benefits to this interviewing technique too. It makes the interviews longer. It makes children and interviewers much more comfortable. And it increases the amount of silence that people are willing to endure during an interview. 
without putting too much pressure on either the child or the interviewer. The interviewer actually becomes much more comfortable with silence, sitting back and allowing the child to think a little bit more carefully about the things that they haven't yet expressed. All of those happen when you're interviewing a child withdrawing. Which one of those particular mechanisms is most important in the drawing technique? We're still trying to answer that question. The other projective tests that are commonly used on children's drawings is to get children to draw a picture of something and then draw inferences about the child's emotional state on the basis of the colors that they use in the drawing or the size of the objects that they produce in their drawings. They would be used in cases of custody and access, for example. So the placement of different family members on the page is one of these things that is often used to say, mom is over here, therefore she's outside the family, or dad is drawn very small. Small is either interpreted oftentimes as being really, really bad or really, really good. There's no consistent view about it. This takes me back to a drawing my son did at school last year. In the drawing, there's a tiny house in the corner. My son and his dad take up at least half the page, and he's also drawn me on the opposite side of the page. And between us is a massive black tornado. Not only that, but I'm half their size, and even our family cat, who died a year earlier, featured more prominently in the picture than I did. In trying to decipher the drawing at the time, I was perplexed. What did it all mean? How did it reflect his feelings towards me? And why did he place me on the other side of the page? children under the age of about 10 place things on the page where they fit and as they think about them. That's a relief. Although our research doesn't directly address the issue of placement, other people have looked at placement and it's really more a product of the child's motoric decisions about the drawing than about their psychological feelings about whatever it is that they are producing. Which is why it horrifies me to think that that could be used in court. Mm. That's really been the point of our research, is to take some fairly large claims about the psychological value of children's art and to systematically begin to test the hypotheses that would be generated if, in fact, this was the case. I made this at school and I put a piece of paint on a pencil, then I started ripping the pages. Well, scratching it out? Yeah, scratching it out. It's artwork. So I see green and yellow and red. It's because those are my favourite colours in the world. What is this picture of? It's a twinkly star. That's a tornado, that's a volcano. And speaking of colour... To test this hypothesis, my students and I have collected literally hundreds of drawings produced by children who've been asked to draw about positive emotional experiences and negative emotional experiences. In the case of the investigating whether or not children use color to express emotion, kids are given exactly the same 10 felt markers. They're spread out in front of them in a random order. They're asked to draw a picture of something that made them angry or happy or sad. They draw their picture and talk about it. And then we take the drawing away and determine whether or not children use particular colors preferentially when they're talking about things that make them happy versus things that make them sad versus things that make them angry. And what we found is that there's absolutely no way to discern the emotional content of the child's drawing on the basis of the size of the objects that they include in their pictures or on the basis of the colors that they used 
to depict whatever event that they're talking about. And there's no way for naive observers to look at the drawings and say, on the basis of the color, that child is describing something that made them sad or something that made them frightened. So do you think that that's something then that we as adults start to recognise or associate colour with an emotional feeling? Uh, Absolutely. Children do not spontaneously use colour to express their emotions about what they draw. So the next time your child pulls out a big black marker to draw your face with scribbles all over it, it's definitely not indicative of anything negative. But rather, children make choices about colour for different reasons. Because it may be the closest one, it may be the strongest one, it may be the one that they're particularly interested in. But I would absolutely not infer anything about the inner contents of his mind or his psychological well-being on the basis of the colours that he uses. But the question I have to ask is, why is it so complicated for us to understand children's drawings or even to have the desire to analyse them for something deeper? It is one of these areas of psychology where the evidence against using the technique is so massive, yet people continue to try to strive to find ways to validate its use. As adults, we're fascinated by children's artwork. It's colorful, it's imaginative. We're captivated by the inherent interestingness of children's artwork. So we we have to believe that there must be something else to it other than simply an interesting piece of art. That's love heart. Uh, that's flower. Those are clouds. I don't know what that is. And you've done this in green. Why did you choose that colour? So why do children draw? And what inspires them at any given time? After working with children for the last two decades, the biggest lesson that I have learned is that if you want to know something about a child, you need to ask them. It's impossible for us as adults to impart our adult view of the world and look at a piece of art that a child has produced and in the absence of any additional input from that child to infer anything about that particular individual. A big thanks to psychologist Harlene Hain from the University of Otago. And that story was produced by Sonia Sly with the help of her six-year-old. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pānakia papatuanuku, tangaroa, meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. Now it's time to talk chemistry with Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. In episode 43 of the Elemental podcast, we are up to lead. Very useful, rather deadly in a nasty, insidious, slow way. <laughs> and looking at this, I've just realised you can spell the word lead using letters from the word deadly. Mm, Curious. Anyway, basic facts first, Alan. Okay, the vital statistics. It is a metal that has an atomic number of 82, and it has an unknown discovery date. So it's one of those ones that was known to the ancients. The name lead comes from, surprise, surprise, the (laughs) Anglo-Saxon word lead, meaning lead. However... The chemical symbol for lead is PB, and you might ask where that comes from. Well, like all of the elements that were known to the ancients, it comes from either the Latin or the Greek. In this case, it's the Latin plumbum, which is Latin for lead. And this is kind of interesting, because if you look at the Greek word for lead, it is molybdos. Which sounds familiar. It does indeed, because when we get to element 42, molybdenum, in a few weeks' time then we're going to find the reason why molybdenum 
was derived from the Greek word for lead. <laughs> now, this podcast elemental is about breaking down barriers, and I'm thinking chemistry phobias, for example. And yeah. it's often said that science and art are quite different spheres of study. But we beg to differ. And Alan, you've got a little lead poetry for us because, well, why not? And this is a poem by Emily Dickinson, and the poem is called After Great Pain, A Formal Feeling Comes. Right, I'll put on my best uh, elocution and see how we go with this. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. The stiff heart questions, was it he that bore, and yesterday or centuries before? The feet, mechanical, go round. A wooden way of ground, or air, or aught, regardless grown. A court's contentment like a stone. This is the hour of lead, remembered, if outlived, as freezing persons recollect the snow. First chill, then stupor, then the letting go. That's very typical (laughs) Emily Dickinson, isn't it? Dense and mysterious. Dense, yes, definitely. (laughs) Like the metal. I won't disagree with you on that one. So that allows us to, I guess, introduce lead, and that poem was supposedly about lead poisoning, believe Hmm. it or not. (laughs) Oh, no, I I get that. I get the the chill, then the stupor, then the letting go, i.e. it finally kills you. Yes, having just yeah. made life really unpleasant for a while. I'll, I'll give you that. I was never good at poetry at school. I just didn't understand it. Anyway, but that's beside the that's point. That's why you're a chemist, Alan. <laughs> so, uh, back, back to lead, uh, which is the element that took down an empire, very possibly. And if I may say this to the editors of our online news sites, lead, L-E-A-D, is not the past tense of the verb to lead. You might not be a poet, but you're reasonably pedantic about English. (laughs) Reasonably pedantic. (laughs) You don't know me at all. Okay, so getting back to lead again, we can look at lead back to at least 6000 BCE, and we can trace it to modern-day central Turkey, there or thereabouts, and we know it's been mined for at least 6,000 years, although given what is to come, I'm really not sure exactly why people have been so obsessed with mining lead. In nature, we find lead in ores, and it's pretty easy to get the metallic lead out of the ores. All you've got to do is roast the ore, and uh, the lead comes out. You drive off the oxygen or sulfur or whatever is with the lead in those ores. Way back when, with the Greeks, uh, they had the first major use for lead, and they used it as surprise, surprise paint, which many of our listeners might be perhaps familiar with. White lead. Uh, I can remember that when I was a kid growing up. You had white lead and red lead. Greeks were doing this thousands of years ago, and they did this by exposing lead to vinegar fumes. Well, we kept on using it in paint for centuries after that, didn't we? And Mm -hmm. am I right in thinking it was also really useful because it's flexible, it's malleable, it's got a low melting point. I'm a diver, and although I've never done it, I've heard of other divers who used to make their weights for weight belts by melting down hunks of lead in pots on the kitchen stove and then pouring it into moulds to get the right shape. Eek! <laughs> yes, I, I hope they were wearing their breathing apparatus when they did that because yeah, <laughs> lead fumes probably not the best for you. Anyway, so to get back to its history, lead is famous amongst the Romans. When I'm talking about the element that took down an empire, basically the Roman Empire was the one I was talking about there. The Romans used lead on a huge scale in, surprise, surprise, plumbing. 
remember the name Plumbum, the Latin word for lead, and that's where plumbing gets its name from. So, I know that I should have known that, and do you know what? I didn't. <laughs> Plum, plumbing, of course. There we go. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> so they used it in plumbing. They used pewter vessels, so you have an alloy of tin and lead. Remember, lead is uh, very soft. You alloy it with tin, and uh, you get that nice hard pewter. And both red and white lead were used for decorating uh, by the Romans. And why did they use it in plumbing? Well, it's brilliant because if you get a hole in your pipes, all you've got to do is beat it out. And you can quite simply fix a hole just by hammering the hole closed with lead pipes. So that's, you, you can understand then why they used it in their plumbing. That wasn't what led very possibly to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. What do they... Romans were very fond of doing was taking grape juice, which in my book is sweet enough already, and they would put it in lead pans and boil it down, and they would from that get a sweet tasting material that was called sapa. We actually know it now as lead acetate. Um, (laughs) And historians and scientists have thought that very possibly this was the reason why the Roman Empire had a very low birth rate. Crikey. That sweet-tasting bit of it reminds me, I've recently had a story on Our Changing World, my RNZ science show, uh, to do with kia, mountain parrots, and they've got a big problem there with kias hanging around townships like Arthur's Pass Village and Arthur's Pass National Park, Hmm. and they love chewing on the lead roofing nails and the lead flashing because it tastes really sweet to them, and then then they have to get shipped off to the wildlife hospital because it doesn't do them any favours. And I've done stories in the past too with Kaka, the forest parrot, same Mm -hmm. issue around places like Wellington where their population is doing very nicely, but they come across all these lead roofing nails. Oh, God, so all living things do anything for sweet things, obviously. They do. That's a, that's a sad story. And speaking of sad stories, uh, lead was pretty ubiquitous in cities, in urban areas. And certainly in the 20th century, as we've already talked about, we did use lead paint because it was brilliant because you could cover wood with it and you're not going to get bored or anything burrowing through lead paint. Uh, But that was uh, not the worst of what we used lead for. Somebody way back in General Motors in 1921 thought it would be a great idea to put a thing called tetraethyl lead into petrol. And when they did this, the engines stopped knocking. Lead petrol, of course. Indeed, leaded petrol. And one of the guys that was very big in this area was a guy by the name of Thomas Midgley. And not content with putting tetraethyl lead into petrol, he was also involved in the development of Freon for use in fridges. He wasn't a great friend of the planet, I would say. Um, He died very, very unusually. He um, was confined to some sort of wheelchair in his later life, and he had a series of wires rigged up so he could sort of operate the curtains and the switches and everything in his room, and he managed to get tangled up in them and strangled himself. Anyway... Well, he probably did that before the ozone hole developed. He probably didn't realise what his legacy to the planet was. Yes, I know. Uh, Yeah, this is really weird. I can't really understand why this is the case, but lead has been used as a quote-unquote medicine for most of the last 2,000 years. And so it's been used to treat such things as uh, skin complaints, piles, cancer, diarrhoea, gonorrhea, and it's also been used to induce abortions. And in all of these things... 
it's probably going to be a case of the cure being worse than the disease because you will doubtless end up with lead poisoning, which is nasty stuff. Far worse than the disease, I would have thought. Yes. So what we find is uh, you can quite easily test for lead if you've got uh, people's hair. And it just so happens that an ex-president of the USA, Andrew Jackson, who is on the $20 bill over there, and the great Ludwig van Beethoven, uh, both of those, their hair has been shown to contain elevated levels of lead. They probably lived in houses with sophisticated lead plumbing. <laughs> and I think the problem with that is that when you get it in something like your hair, the lead is actually bioaccumulating. I mean, that's what it does on those birds. So it bioaccumulates in the brain. It's really neurotoxic and it becomes a chronic problem especially implicated in intellectual disabilities in kids, which is pretty awful, and it does apparently cause a lot of deaths still. Yeah, it's not good. It's better than it was with all of the uh, lead petrol and uh, lead paint and stuff. Nowadays, if you do find yourself uh, a victim of lead poisoning, you can treat it with chelation therapy, and this is a therapy whereby you inject molecules into the body that have a real affinity for lead or heavy metals in general, And um, it basically sucks them up, and then you can expel those uh, in the usual way. We find lead is very, very important in radioactivity. Uh, Not radioactive in itself, although it does have some radioactive isotopes, but what we find is that many of the heavy radioactive elements, such as uranium, etc., eventually, once they've gone through their uh, decay cycle, they do end up as lead through both alpha and beta decay. The ironic thing is, if you want to protect yourself from radioactivity, the thing that you use is a lead shield. (laughs) Now, because of this, because of the fact that uranium starts as uranium and ends up as lead, if you know that uranium to lead ratio in a rock, for example, you can use this as a method of dating those rocks. So that's kind of cool. Well, this whole episode has been really interesting, but I, I have to do that. Tell me an interesting fact. (laughs) All of this has been involved with the fact that lead is nasty for you, and this interesting fact is no different. The Franklin Expedition, if any listeners know about that, absolutely fascinating. Read a book about it. It's absolutely a a really, really amazing story. Sir John Franklin set off in 1845, and he wanted to find a Northwest Passage, which was the passage between the Atlantic and the Pacific, so that would have given a quick way to go between those oceans over the top of Canada. And sadly, the ships and the crew disappeared without trace until very, very recently they found the uh, ships. But what they did at the time, they sent out the search parties, and what they did find was the graves of three men. And they exhumed these graves in 1988, and their bodies were found to contain very, very high levels of lead. Their bodies almost perfectly preserved because of the uh, cold up there. And they traced this high lead content back to the fact that they were using lead solder in their food on board the ship. And this was a very, very new technology at that time. And it wasn't really brilliantly successful, obviously, because the lead solder appeared to have got into the food and people postulate that the party basically disappeared because of lead poisoning. Well, it was probably a very good way of keeping their food safe and stopping it going rotten. Um, (laughs) They just had no idea what they were doing. And all I can say is, thank goodness, we've developed safer ways of canning food that doesn't involve lead. (laughs) And if you're up for one more interesting fact... Oh, always. um, So this is quite scary, actually. So if you store your port in a lead crystal decanter, and you leave it there for a year, then Canadian scientists actually measured that the port ends up containing, after that one year, 2,000 parts per million of lead. 
Oh, I never liked port. <laughs> now I know why. <laughs> it's a safety feature. No, I, I won't have any of your port from that lovely crystal decanter, thank you. <laughs> and although I've said no to the port, it's a big thanks to Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology for his inspiring chemical insights in the RNZ Elemental podcast. If you'd like to listen to tonight's stories again or find some others, just head to our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can sign up for our free weekly newsletter and follow along with the Elemental and Kākāpō Files podcasts. All our stories are posted on Twitter and Facebook where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Kia Pai Topo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.